This podcast has been sponsored by Investec. Their latest podcast is a four-part series on preparing for a post-pandemic world. The series on Investec Focus Radio features global experts discussing the changing world of work and the role of companies, as well as the shifting sands of geopolitics and the global investment landscape in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. The podcast features experts like Lesetia Kanyajo, David Rubenstein, Alanda Botton, Philip Hammond, and John Kay. You can listen to Investec Focus Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do your listening. Rodney Wilkinson says his story has often been treated as frivolous, a kind of white boy caper or an unlikely prank almost by a hippie who succeeded in pulling off one of apartheid's most daring acts of sabotage against the odds. He says this interpretation irritates him because what he did in December 1982 was actually meticulously planned and thought through. Right from the get-go it was avoid civilian casualty and don't spill radiation. We don't want to evacuate Cape Town, right from the scratch. 38 years ago, Rodney Wilkinson carried out the only act of nuclear terrorism ever committed on the African continent. To this day, it's regarded as one of the most successful attacks in history on a nuclear base. This is the second episode in our two-part series telling the incredible true story of the bombing of the Kuburg nuclear plant in Cape Town in 1982. For this show, we traveled to hear that story from Rodney Wilkinson himself. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, the Daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. I'm Rebecca Davis. Rebecca. That's me. I'm trying to do an awkward parking. Is it okay just to be on the road here? There's plenty of room. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Oops. Am I going into the side? No, you're fine. Can I just leave it like that? Yeah, it's fine. Perfect. Thank you. Very little traffic. Excellent stuff. All righty. A few days ago, my Daily Maverick colleague Leila and I drove to Neisner to speak to the Kuburg bomber, Rodney Wilkinson. Rodney is 72 years old, but he leapt out onto the road barefoot to welcome us. He still has some of the antic energy which one can imagine driving him almost four decades ago. To this day, the ANC's military wing, Nkonto Wesizwe, lists the 1982 bombing of the Kuburg nuclear plant as one of its greatest successes in the armed struggle against apartheid. But today, the story is not well remembered, which is one of the reasons why we wanted to tell it. Rodney brought me and Leila up to a wood-panelled room where he had prepared a stack of photographs 
and a notebook with pages filled with his handwriting. It was clear from the outset that he wanted us to get things right. Over the 38 years since the bombing, he has told his story to only a handful of journalists and often been disappointed with the results. This is quite clearly a story that means a great deal to him, one of a few defining narratives of a life which began 72 years ago in northern Johannesburg. Rodney grew up in what he describes as a fairly ordinary white English-speaking home. His mother was a bookkeeper, his father an office worker, but his father had been an artillery major in the Second World War, which proved to be an irresistible influence for young Rodney. I was born in 49 like a boom baby. So we'd grown up in an atmosphere of a victorious war against fascism. So I was intrigued and romanticized violence or war against fascists. And also walking home from school at primary school level, we witnessed the uh, violence from police against past law offenders. We'd see them being arrested in the streets of Parkhurst and being thrown into police vans and trying to run away and being brutalized. After leaving school, he was conscripted into the army before enrolling at WITS for a degree in building science. At the same time, though, he was reaching the heights of his chosen sport, fencing, in which he achieved national colors. Being a springbok afforded him the chance to travel internationally, which he loved, and he ended up dropping out of WITS to travel. Stints as a draftsman and a fencing coach followed, but in 1976, he got a call from the army again. I got this call from Sergeant Kemp, who said, pitch up next week Thursday at the park station or go to jail. Because I'd been AWOL from the army ever since I'd been to Europe. I just ignored all their correspondence. So I went home to my daddy and I said, Daddy, what must I do? I've got four choices. I can go to the army, I can go to jail, I can run away, or I can just go into hiding. I mean, skip the country or go into hiding. He said, go to the army, young man. <laughs> and because there was so little time to prepare anything, I went to the army with the same spirit that I went to Coburg with. And I ended up three months later with a broken skull and in hospital for another five months. The story of how he ended up leaving the army after three months with a broken skull is what seems like quite a typical Rodney anecdote. The short version is that he smashed a stolen truck escaping from Angola with other deserters. Here's the slightly longer version. We were waiting to be transported home to Cape Town to our wives. And we'd handed in our weapons and all the vehicles that we'd been using in Angola were unmarked because they were occupation vehicles. So you couldn't identify one from the other, so they were free game for stealing. So 12 of us loaded one of these Unimogs with crates of beer and set off south with our pay to fly to Cape Town, to go drive to Vintook and then fly to Cape Town. I decided that I would drive the truck. I dropped them all at the Vintook airport and drive the truck until it ran out of petrol, then I'd hitchhike. The trouble was, I fell asleep at about two o'clock in the morning, midnight or something, and crashed the truck over, over a culvert. 
and it landed on my head and broke my skull. Astonishingly, Rodney escaped punishment. The vehicle he had stolen was in use in an illegal occupation, and he says the government didn't want to admit to that. He was simply given an army discharge. So Rodney moved to Cape Town and tried to get on with his life. I was a fencing coach, and the fencing coaching recreational training doesn't do well, especially then. So one of my pupils, a British communist, Dennis Penaluna, he had a contact at Coburg, an engineer, and I was a trained draftsman. And he suggested that I contact him for a job, which was very nice because at the time I was had a young child and staying on a commune near Pal. So I applied for the job and got it. The job was in the concrete construction of Coburg. Helping build a nuclear power station for the apartheid government wasn't exactly up Rodney's alley. But he decided that because of what he terms the political and ecological nastiness of the place, he would take the job with the aim from the beginning of finding a way to sabotage the Coburg project. When we're back, the plan very slowly begins to take shape. Investec has a new four-part podcast series on Investec Focus Radio, which explores the changing world of work, investing and geopolitics in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. We didn't predict COVID-19, but we can prepare for its aftermath. Humankind didn't predict COVID-19, but we can prepare for its aftermath. We can get to a point where the odds are on our side. Understanding cycles is the most important element in that. COVID is going to fuel the rate of outsourcing, of getting labor inputs from anywhere around the globe. Insights from global experts on preparing for a post-pandemic world. Subscribe to Investec Focus Radio South Africa, wherever you get your podcasts. Rodney had been working at Kuburg for 18 months, and he hadn't come up with very much towards thwarting the apartheid regime's nuclear aspirations. The best I could think of doing was to steal a set of plans and hand it over to somebody who would do something. By this stage, Rodney's first marriage had collapsed, and he had a girlfriend called Heather Gray, who's really as central to the story as Rodney is. It was Heather who suggested that Rodney should indeed steal a set of Kuburg plans and bring them to the ANC. Rodney was wary of the ANC because he'd been told years earlier that the organization was full of spies, but he went ahead with the idea. When Rodney made contact with the ANC in Zimbabwe, however, he immediately faced suspicion that he was a spy. Indeed, on the face of it, Rodney must have seemed suspicious. A young white man with no formal ties to the organization at that stage rocks up to Harari saying he's stolen a set of plans to the apartheid government's nuclear power plant if the ANC would care to use them. It's not hard to see why he would have raised some eyebrows. But the ANC decided Rodney was worth the chance, and he and his girlfriend Heather start receiving weekly lessons from Jeremy Brickhill, who was one of the most senior white faces in Zimbabwe's fight for independence. Rodney knew Jeremy was training them for something. He just wasn't sure quite what. Reading books, spending weekends talking about them, uh, 
he was testing me, suggesting that I hide arms or give money, that sort of thing. Testing my will and my ability. When the two were deemed ready, they were passed on to the ANC's Mac Maharaj, who of course would go on to become the spokesperson for former South African President Jacob Zuma. And it was Mac who made a suggestion which initially shocked Rodney. Mac said, okay, you've got the Kuberg plans. Why don't you plant bombs inside it? Why don't you blow up Kuberg? And he told me, some people are good at some things, other people are good at other things. You can sing or you can paint or you can talk or you can do this sort of stuff. The pep talk succeeded. Rodney and Heather returned to Cape Town and Rodney contacted the agents who had placed him in a job at Kuberg three years earlier before he'd left with his stolen plans. And what do you know? They have another job for him. It isn't a job with Kuberg per se. It's a job with a company Kuberg has subcontracted to and it involves doing drawings of the piping. The designers draw the piping to fit in a certain way, but when they come to actually put it in, it doesn't quite fit like that. So they do it in a different way. So my job was to map how it was actually done and change it on the drawings. So that if people had to go in there and find valves in the nuclear island, they could find the valves, which weren't in the place that they were on the original drawings. So that was what our company was doing. It was a subcontractor form to do that. Even before he started work, Rodney was mentally planning. He would need a vehicle in which to smuggle in the bombs, for instance and he expected not to be granted a car access disc. But he thought he might be allowed in on a motorbike. I'd been looking for a a big Honda Golden Wing or something which had a saddle big enough for a bomb. As it turned out, however, Rodney was unexpectedly given a car access disc. This was to prove critical in the execution of the plan and was one of a number of terrible mistakes on the part of Kuburg authorities. The idea behind blowing up Kuburg was in keeping with the strategy followed by the ANC's armed wing, Mkonto Wesizwe, during the 1970s and 80s. It was part of the principles of guerrilla warfare, where small groups acting in concert would carry out targeted attacks on sites of both political and logistical significance to the enemy government. As we heard in our previous episode, the intelligence gathered by Oxford doctoral candidate Renfrew Christie was used by MK operatives to blow up power stations all over South Africa. And it was Christie who included in a confession read aloud in court in 1979 a kind of how-to guide to bombing Kuburg, information which was passed through the ANC to Rodney Wilkinson. Rodney says they knew they wanted the damage to Kuburg to be substantial. They wanted damage which would be expensive to fix. They also knew they did not want civilians to be harmed, which is why the explosions had to take place before the work on Kuburg was completed. It was obvious from early on that there was no ways we could permanently damage it. It was just too big. And anything we did, they could counter. So it had to be a political and a damage statement. And it had to be done safely before the startup and when we knew where the fuel was. A lot of thought also went into which weapons to use. There was an obvious front-runner candidate here, limpet mines. They were invented in the Second World War to stick on the sides of ships so they were magnetic. 
and with a directed charge, a focused charge, which would puncture ships. And it became a symbol of the MK's operations. And so I had to be trained how to use them and how to fit the timing, the detonators, because there were sets of aluminium chips to set in a spring-loaded firing pin. And if you put in a big chip, it would cut slowly through like a wire through cheese, a wire through aluminium. So if you put a big one in, it would last 24 hours. If you put a small one in, it would be like 20 minutes. So I had to know all about that, how to unscrew it and put it together and not kill myself. They had chosen the locations for the limpet bombs, the nuclear reactor heads, a section of the containment building and a cluster of electric cables under the main control room. They had chosen the day for the detonation, December 16th, the day of the covenant. Rodney had already informed his boss he would be leaving at this time, so as not to arouse suspicion if he suddenly disappeared straight after the bombing. Ahead of the chosen day, Rodney and Heather collected four limpet mines from hidden locations in the Karoo. Rodney concealed the mines in a secret compartment in his Renault, drove onto the site, and from there carried the mines into the power plant concealed in his overalls. After he'd set the bombs, he left the plant as usual. The bombs were set to explode 24 hours later, when Kuburg would be almost entirely empty. So Rodney Wilkinson installed bombs inside Kuburg and was then driven by his sister Kath and her boyfriend Adrian to the border between South Africa and Swaziland. There, he mounted a bicycle they'd brought with them and rode across the border on a bike to freedom. After the bombing, Rodney was told to wait for contact at a wimpy in Maseru the following morning. From there, he traveled to Maputo in Mozambique, where one of his ANC handlers put him in a flat while they made arrangements for Rodney to meet with ANC leader Oliver Tambo, known as OR. They brought me Soviet fish and whiskey to keep me inside, not going out. He brought Joe Slova to see me, who took me in his new white BMW to see OR. And because I was a bit pickled on whiskey, I asked him, how can a communist like you have a big new white BMW when all of Maputo is driving mopeds? He laughed and he said, this was stolen in Joburg two weeks ago and delivered. <laughs> <laughs> so he took me in his big white BMW to see OR in a big house in Maputo. So he celebrated like anything. The bombing of Kuburg caused panic among security forces, made international headlines, and was a source of profound embarrassment to the apartheid regime. In our previous episode, we mentioned that ESCOM's auditors estimated the damage at the time to be around 500 million rand. Rodney thinks the real cost may have been even higher. It was a hell of a damage. It delayed it on average 18 months for two, two reactors. So one was down for one year and the other was down for two. They had to rewire the whole damn thing and all the electronics had to be redone. Rodney was never caught, which he believes was the result of a deliberately sloppy investigation because authorities stood to be further humiliated if the truth came out. I had access everywhere, even where I didn't need it, like in the reactor one, which was finished, ready to go. And so I imagine, I don't know, 
and P.W. Boerter flew in there, had a look, told the investigators, don't find the truth because Oliver Tambo had already claimed responsibility. Find an alternative truth. We can't give them credit for this. One alternative truth, which was floated by ESCOM authorities after the fact, was the theory that the German terrorist group Bader-Meinhof may have been involved, for which there appeared to be absolutely no evidence. Rodney says what allowed him to carry out his plan was, in large part, Kuberg's failure to do due diligence on who they were allowing onto the site. He had even carried out anti-nuclear protest activities in between his first and second stints at Kuberg, which were never picked up on. In my case, I worked for a subcontractor of the main contractor. Therefore, I was never vetted for the job or the access to the nuclear island. If they had vetted me, they would have come up with all my anti-nuke activity. They would have come up with an army thing, another self-inflicted goal. The fact that Rodney and Heather Wilkinson were the Kuberg bombers only became public knowledge in 1995, when Rodney became aware that a newspaper had caught wind of his identity and offered the Mail and Guardian the exclusive story. At this stage, Rodney was working for the National Intelligence Agency. He and Heather visited Kuburg with a small group from the NIA and met two guards who were there the night the bombs went off in 1982. One was a guard who was closest to the first bomb, which went off underneath a secondary control room, which controls all the waste management. And he went grey on meeting me. He was very unimpressed because he'd got such a fright. He described it as because he was sitting at the door and the bomb was around the corner down the passage underneath a, uh, a tree trunk of cables that went up into the bottom of the secondary control room. One hell of a bang. Anyway, so I apologized to him. And the other guy was somebody who was in the control room, Van Heerden, I think. And he shook my hand. In May 1999, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission granted amnesty to Rodney and Heather Wilkinson for the bombing of the Kuburg power station in 1982. Several times while we were talking, Rodney expressed what seemed to be annoyance that his identity as the Kuburg bomber had eventually been leaked. I was curious to know why. Would you rather no one had ever found out that you were responsible for this? Definitely. Why? It just makes a better story in the end. <laughs> <laughs> just feel better about it. It didn't hurt anybody. Did a huge amount of damage. Never got caught. Did get caught, etc. Would you do it again? I will. <laughs> 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 At least, I think that was a joke. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji with sound engineering, editing and support by Bernard Kotzer, Tevya Turok Shapiro and Catherine Kotzer. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on The Daily Maverick's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to The Daily Maverick's newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram 